Okay, we are continuing our series. We're going to be um, in Colossians chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to get there in a few minutes. Uh, developing a biblical worldview. Tonight, we're going to focus on the importance of theology. So we're going we're to define a few things. We're going to try to understand that a little bit better and see how uh, theology will shape. Really, as Pastor Seth has been talking uh, lately, you know, critical thinking last week and how that helps build that foundation for a, a good worldview, a biblical worldview. Now we're starting to go even deeper, even more foundational with theology. Um, and, and we're going to get to Colossians 1 in a minute. But a few things just to before we get started. One, I am, I am very, very grateful for this series on biblical worldview. I, I had no idea what that was until a friend of mine about 25 years ago said, you ought to read a book by Francis Schaeffer. How should we then live? He's got other books. I'll talk about them here in just a second. And he talks about these things like worldview and epistemology. We're going to define it. Uh, presuppositions and, and why we think like we do sometimes very, very badly. Um, but when we allow God to shape our thinking, it makes a difference. And he explained culture, particularly Western culture. Um, super grateful. So as I began to understand a little bit more about worldview and how our worldview not only affects the way we think, but it affects the way we act. Um, one of the consistent prayers that Beth and I have for our kids was that they would develop a biblical worldview. We, we probably prayed that, if not every day, pretty much every day. God, give our kids a biblical worldview. We want them to see the world through biblical lenses. We want, to, we want them to see the world the way that God does. Uh, we obviously wanted them to be saved. It's part of having a biblical worldview. Um, but we want them to live in the world from a biblical perspective. The culture, the world that we live in, that's, that's around us, it will not help us our kids, our grandkids, our friends, it will not help any of us develop a biblical worldview. We must be intentionally cultivating a biblical worldview through studying God's word, letting it sink into our hearts, and then the spirit using that uh, to, to grow the way that we think. Um, so first, biblical worldview, so important. Uh, two, Epistemology, preposition, we're going to use some big words tonight. That doesn't mean that we're smart. It just means that they're big words. Um, and so, so kind of bear with me. I remember when I first started reading this book and, and these words would come up, existentialism. I'm like, oh my gosh, postmodern thought. What, is, what does this even mean? So I read it again and again and again and again. Finally kind of start to get it. Um, I grew up in rural county, North Carolina. It's a funny thing. My, uh, the year I graduated from high school, we were ranked 49th in education. <laughs> I don't even know who was 50, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, it's a miracle that I can read. But I, I, I practiced, um, and here's what I would say. The, the words are important because they represent important concepts that we need to understand. So we'll bear with the big words, we'll lean into it, and we'll learn together. And I'm, I like gave you all my notes. So whatever, anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, 
other thing about worldview, presuppositions, and these kinds of things is, is this. This is one of the fundamental things I figured out. We all bring baggage as far as worldview is concerned. We all grew up, uh, we, were, we were born sinners, right? And we grew up uh, with the world around us teaching us things and, and just the sinful nature inside of us teaching us things. Again, like one of the, I think one of the greatest apologetics for sin nature is the two-year-old, right? You have to teach them to be selfish. No, it's going to happen. Uh, it's in there. Um, uh, anyway, we're going to talk about angels. Oh, my kid, he's just a little angel. No, he's not. He's not. One, the, the Bible, there's a difference between angels and people, right? We'll get, get that straight. Two, your kid's a sinner. Biblical worldview. I remember when I, I started applying some of this biblical worldview stuff, when our kids were little and I would call our kids sinners. I love them. I did everything I could to show them that love, to teach them the gospel, but I would pretty consistently refer to them as sinners. Man, the grandparents didn't like that, right? They're not sinners, they're sweet. They're not sweet, uh, they're sinners. And so biblical worldview, very, very applicable. But, but we bring baggage when we're talking about this. We don't like some of these things. We all bring unhelpful stuff to the table. Uh, so here's some things that I heard growing up that kind of, when I was younger, it shaped my worldview. It shaped the way I thought. I didn't know any better. And I grew up in the Bible Belt with a lot of cultural Christianity. So, y'all have heard this one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Right? Where's that in the Bible? It's not, right? So if you say it, stop. That cleanliness is next to godliness didn't come from God. It came from some unhappy parent whose kid wouldn't clean up their room, right? So... Um, but, but we think about these things. Oh boy, clean, I'm not saying we need to be dirty people. That's not my point at all. But we make cleanliness maybe more than we should when you start thinking about biblical worldview. Um, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not biblical. Hey, here's one that just gets all over me. I hope you hadn't said it. God is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. That's not biblical worldview. Tell that to Abraham or Moses. I'll tell you, you really ought to have a conversation with that about is Paul, right? Um, by God's grace, he comes into our lives. He invades spaces that we don't want him to. And he makes us better through his sanctifying work in the spirit because of it, right? So don't go talking about God in ways that the Bible doesn't talk about him. Um, God does come into our life, sometimes forcefully, and I'm grateful for that. Here, this, my all-time favorite thing, I, I probably heard this as much as anything. This, y'all are going to, I don't know, y'all are going to think I'm crazy. Have you ever seen it? Beth's over there wondering what I'm about to say. Um, whenever the sun is shining... In the summertime, the sun is shining and a rainstorm comes. So the sun is shining and it's raining at the same time. Right? We've seen that. It's unusual. It's odd. When I was growing up, I used to hear all the time, when the sun is shining and it's raining at the same time, the devil is beating his wife. Think about that. This is the Bible Belt. We have Bibles in our house. 
And we're talking about the devil beating his wife when the sun's shining and it's raining. That raises all kinds of issues, right? So is the devil into the weather, right? And is he, I didn't know he had a wife. And all kinds of stuff. So a little bit of self-examination, also a little bit of self-examination through this process is good. A little bit of self-awareness is helpful. So here's what I would say, and then we'll jump into some other stuff. Our theology must be based on the word of God. Our worldview and our presupposition, we want them based on the Bible because the stakes are too high for us to be making stuff up and just believing lies. Can't do it. All right, so now I'm with y'all. What we're gonna do is we're gonna define a few terms, epistemology, presupposition, theology, uh, we're going to talk through some of that to build a little bit of that foundation again. And then we're going to jump into uh, Colossians chapter 1. So we're going to move fast. Now, bear with me. I'm gonna, you've got what I've got. I'm going to read a lot of this. So I know that can be boring. We're going to try to not make it boring. Um, but we're big people, and so we can do that. Um, and then when we get to the Bible, I hope and pray that's not boring. Epistemology. Anybody know what that means? It's one of those big words. It's two Greek words, episteme and ology. It means to know and the study of, to the study of knowing how to know. <clears throat> Epistemology is the theory or study of knowledge, the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. So there are opinions, we've all got them, right, about different things. That's opinions and justified belief in what's true, that's two different things. So when I say, for example, Jesus was raised from the dead. Some people say, oh, that's what you, no, no, no. That's not an opinion. Uh, that is justified belief. History, etc., etc., would say that the resurrection really did happen. So epistemology is the study of how we know things, how we know things are real and true versus just an opinion. Some questions we might ask along this is, how do we know things? Another question, what makes up reality? That's a big deal. What's real and what's not real? I'm telling you, this stuff is going to, we need to have this conversation again in about five years as some of the AI and other things like that begin to, to develop. I'm not saying that's like the boogeyman, but I'm saying there's going to be some stuff, more and more fake stuff coming out. How, another question, how do I know that this is true as opposed to something else? Epistemology is going to answer these questions. What is knowledge and how is it acquired? Good epistemology forces us to deal with reality and truth. Not just truth, but absolute truth. Francis Schaeffer refers to this as true truth, as opposed to, you've heard people say it, right? Well, this is my truth, right? I've got my truth and you've got your truth and, and you do your thing and I'll do my thing and it's all good. Be very, very careful. If you catch yourself saying, well, this is my truth or this is your truth, uh, I would step back from that. I don't think that's biblical worldview. The Bible teaches that there's absolute truth. An example that we can talk about would be here is morals. Now, this is, this is good. If there is no absolute moral standard or truth, 
then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. We used to have this conversation with, uh, with Chinese people a lot on the camp, college campuses. That they would, they're atheists, said they don't believe in a God. And I'm saying, I'm, I believe in a God. Um, so, well, that's okay. If you believe that, that, you believe that, that's fine. And I believe what I believe, and, it's fine, and everything's, it's all good. No, 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 it's not. Because truth, absolute truth, means that there's a, a, what we call a thesis, something is, and then it would also have an antithesis, something, if it, if it is this, then it is not that. So if there either is a God or there is not a God, truth would tell us that that's how that has to be. You can't have both. Oh yeah, there is a God and there's not a God. It's one or the other. And so we would talk about the implications of not having a God. So if there's no God, who makes the rules? Right? If, if, if I'm God, I make the rules. Or if we're all just the same kind of happy accident, evolutionary process come to fruition, at least to this point, I can do kind of whatever I want to do. You can do kind of whatever you want to do. Well, yeah. And I'll tell you who makes the rules, though. In the godless world, the, the guy that's got the most guns, he's the one that makes the rules, right? But we don't believe that. We believe that there is absolute truth. We believe that we find it in the Bible. We, be we believe that there are moral standards, that there is truth that we can live by. Now, by absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which always provides a final or ultimate standard. God doesn't change. Murder will always be murder. Uh, God doesn't change. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals, and there must be an absolute if there are to be real values. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. So if there's no moral standard, absolute truth, then all we have is conflicting opinions. We believe that there is absolute truth. We hold that God's word, the Bible, is that ultimate absolute. We believe it teaches us absolutely what God would have us know. And I know Pastor Seth has been talking about this with uh, the revelation pieces that he's been speaking of. The Bible is true. It's inerrant. If God has not revealed himself through special revelation and through his son Jesus, we have a problem. We can know generally about God through general revelation, but we need specifics to answer critical existential questions. Remember the questions that Seth's been talking about? How did it all begin? Well, the, that's, a, that's a question we're asking whether we know it or not. The Bible answers that question through creation. How did it all begin? What does it mean to be human? That's a huge question. Again, the Bible answers that question for us. The Imago Dei. I was created in the image of God. Colossians 1 is going to give us even a little bit more insight into that as we think about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Guys, the Bible teaches us that we were created to be like Jesus. 
Romans 8, 29. We're being transformed into his image over and over again. Biblical, uh, biblical worldview makes a difference. Well, okay, we were creating his image. Next big question we have, what went wrong? Because it sure is a mess, right? The world we live in. The Bible answers that question. Genesis 3, I refer to Genesis 3 all the time in life. Car breaks down. Guess what? That's the result of Genesis 3. It wouldn't break if we didn't have sin. And I know car breaking down isn't the biggest thing in the world. Why do bad things happen? Genesis 3. Sin has entered into the world. Why are we here? God answers that question by putting us on mission. How are right and wrong determined? Finally, big question. What happens to people when they die? Also, how would we know about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection without a special, trustworthy revelation? Epistemology, we're going to base it. How we know what we know, we're going to begin by basing it on God's Word. It is absolute truth. A good question to ask if somebody's talking to you and you're like, I don't know about that. Ask this question. What does the Bible say? What's the Bible say about that? Where's that found in the Bible? That helps clear up a lot of the conversations we have with people. What does the Bible say about that? It helps to clarify how we know what we know. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then, it's the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's been teaching to these people. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When we build our lives on the word of God, on, on the, the second person of Trinity, Jesus, our savior, we're building on a firm foundation what God calls us to. Presuppositions. Go back and read that. If you ever have, if you read through that and you're like, I don't understand this. Let's talk about that. I would be glad to talk about it and try to figure it out with you even more. We're all learning. Presuppositions. A presupposition is something that you assume to be true. It's the basic way an individual looks at life, or you could say one's basic worldview or the grid through which one sees the world. It's kind of like your perspective. And again, be careful. People say, well, i got my perspective. You've got your perspective. Let's work to have a biblical perspective on the world. Presuppositions rest upon what you consider to be true. So if this book is where we're growing in our truth, we're going to be growing more and more to have biblical presuppositions, a biblical perspective on the world. They provide, presuppositions provide the basis for your values and your decisions. This is a big deal. It's one of the reasons I pray this for my kids. I still pray God give them a biblical worldview is because they're making, as we get older, our decisions have more weight to them, right? When you're a kid, you're deciding if you should play this game or play that game. When you're an adult, the decisions have higher stakes. We want our presuppositions to be based on the Bible. Our inner thought world determines our outward actions. Why do I do what I do? It's because of what's going on in my mind and in my heart. 
and I'm praying that I'm being sanctified by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God so that my mind and my heart are in tune with Him and my actions, therefore, are in tune with Him. An example of how this works, and this hit me the other day whenever I came to the men's breakfast on Saturday morning. Charlie, you didn't know I was struggling when I came in the door. I have a presupposition, and it is that trucks, pickup trucks, Pickup trucks are manly. Right? It's my presupposition. I believe it. I do not have a truck. I realized that when I pulled into the parking lot, every single man there had a truck but me. Actually, I think there was one other car. I don't have a truck. Therefore, what? I'm not manly. That's the problem. That's the problem. Therefore, I need to go buy a truck. Now, I'm not going to go buy a truck. Um, But you see how that works. Um, We believe certain things. We have values around those beliefs. And then we act on those things. And what if I did do that? Hey, kids, we're calling college off for the next couple of years so I can go buy me a truck. Um, we're not going to do that. Our presuppositions are often built on what our culture teaches us. Be careful. We must develop, presupp- pre- we must develop biblical presuppositions and a biblical worldview. Remember, we want to build on the rock-solid Word of God and on Jesus, His Son. Listen, I love this. Uh, Actually, I read this quote. I should have given given it to you from Francis Schaeffer. A culture or individual with a weak base can stand only when the pressure on it is not too great. When, when, When the pressure begins to be applied in life, that's when we really begin to see what is... On the, on the inside, we begin to see what our, what our base is. What really is our epistemology? What really is our presupposition? What really are, is our worldview? Um, it'll get squeezed out. Okay, finally, theology. Simple, the study of God. Um, that, that word theos, C-O, and, and again, logos, it's two Greek words that have come together for the study of God. That logos, that, that root for that is the same as in John 1, 1. Uh, so you can also think of it as theology, as the word or the logic, the idea of God. Where do we get our theology from? Guys, we get our, again, we say this over and over and over again. We get our theology from the Bible. We want to develop a, a biblical understanding of who God is. And then notice here, theology is a very broad term. It refers not only to God, but to all God has revealed to us in sacred scripture. Included in the discipline of theology is the study of Christ or Christology. I would say that is one of the most important things we can do. Understanding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christology, it also includes the study of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. So if you hear these words, you'll know them. If somebody's arguing with you, you just throw out that big word, right? And they'll be like, oh, wow, he's, I better be careful. Um, the study of sin, hamartiology, we're all experts in that one, and the study of future things, eschatology. There's other ologies 
But these are all subdivisions of theology. The God of Christianity is an active being, however, and so there must be an initial expansion of this definition to include God's works and his relationship with them. Thus, theology will also seek to understand God's creation, particularly man and his condition, and God's redemptive working in relation to mankind. If we're reading through the Bible and we're not finding God as all-powerful and and desiring a relationship with us, we're probably reading it a little bit incorrectly. So those frameworks, and Seth has talked about this creation. I think he's talked about this the last couple weeks, creation. We see that early in the Bible, this big framework of what the Bible teaches. There's, there's God who's creator. We're created in his image. Very, very quickly, though, we see fall. What's wrong with the world? The fall, Genesis 3, that's what's wrong with the world and all the implications from that. And then beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, God promises the Savior, right? He said there's going to be one that will come who will defeat sin and evil. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. You're going to strike him on the heel, but he's going to undo you. And then we begin to read God's promises throughout Genesis. I love the ones to Abraham. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Right? The promises on and on and on until we finally see in Matthew the rescuer comes. Jesus has come to restore. So we've got creation, fall, and we've got restoration, rescue. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him is not going to perish but have everlasting life. And that rescue is beautiful. But even more than that is the, the fourth one is restoration. Read through the book of Revelation and how God comes and he dwells with his people. I love what it says. There's not going to be any more tears, no more crying, no more pain. He'll wipe those away. Those are biblical truths that we want to build our life on. That begins to help fill our theology out. A few more things about theology. Theology is biblical. So we want to know what the Bible says. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Theology is systematic. So again, these ideas of, I want to know a little bit more about Jesus, the Christology piece. Dig in and study that. What about pneumatology? What about the Holy Spirit? What about eschatology? So we can systematize our theology as well. Theology is timeless. A couple of things there. One, because we're learning more about the eternal God. Two, the theology that the disciples had, it's good for us 2,000 years later. This book is relevant always. Theology is practical. It helps us know how to live our lives. Theology relates to the meta narrative of the Bible. I was just talking about that, creation, fall, rescue, and, and restoration. And, and this, is, this is a thing we don't ever want to lose sight of. Theology points us to Jesus. Theology points us to the Savior. The task of biblical theology is to consider the data of Scripture as it unfolds over time, and this work serves as a source for the systematic theologian. A biblical scholar goes through the Scriptures and studies the progressive development of terms, concepts, and themes in both the Old Testament and New Testament to see how they are used and understood over the course of the history of Revelation. That's the thing we call progressive revelation. 
So when God began to explain to Abraham, we mentioned a minute ago in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Did Abraham understand fully everything that God was saying there? He did not. But he's beginning to hear these things, blessing, nations, right? Genesis 3 taught us about a, a, a conqueror, a savior. So over time, we begin to understand that blessing more. Isaiah clarifies a lot about the blessings in the nations. He talks about the Savior that's going to come, who will be a light to the nations. And as we read through the New Testament, we see that developed even more, and we, we get a full picture of what it means that God, who God is, who we are, and His plan to save us. So again, as we're thinking about these things, one of the questions that we want to keep asking ourselves and others is, What does the Bible say? If I'm working through an issue, what does the Bible say about this? Okay, now, we're at Colossians 1. We've got a few minutes. Four reasons why we study theology. I'm going to read, and then we're going to go through these quick. Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking about Jesus. This is one of those big Christological passages. So go back and look at this. Read through John 1, big Christological passage. Philippians 2, big Christological passage. Colossians 1, and then Hebrews 1. <clears throat> just, just listen and, and think about how it's describing Jesus, our Savior. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. You ever feel like the world's falling apart? Be honest. You ever feel like your life is falling apart? Bible says right there that Jesus holds everything together. It literally means there's a cohesiveness to the world because of Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit more. The world's not falling apart, guys. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed through or in your evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Uh, we all have issues with our identity, right? Shame, we struggle with that. This is, this is who I am, and I don't, I don't want people to know that. I don't want people to see that. That's embarrassing. If you're in Christ, the Bible right here says that you are holy, faultless, and blameless before God the Father because of the righteousness that Jesus gives you. That's your identity. Verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Verse 24. Now I I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Real quick, four reasons why we study theology from Colossians chapter 1 here, a little bit of Colossians chapter 2. The first one is this, we study theology to learn about the character of God. That's primary. We study theology to learn about God. If you'll look through Colossians here and you take this home and read it again and make some notes, it talks about the invisible God. John 1.18 says the same thing, but what does John clarify about the God that no one has seen? John 1.18, let me get there real quick. This is beautiful. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So no one's seen the Father, the invisible God, but Jesus came as a revelation of God so that we could know who God is and we could know him better. Hebrews 1 talks about a similar thing. We also see here in Colossians that God is eternal. He's over all creation. That firstborn doesn't mean there was a time when he was born. It means that he's always existed. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, right? He's the first and he's the last. There was never a time when God didn't exist and there, there will never be a time when he doesn't. God has always existed. He's eternal. These are some of those, the character of the attributes of God. God is holy. He's not like us. Uh, He's separated. He's different. He's sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. God is creator. He made everything that we see. He made us. Begins to speak here, of course, the, the Son and then the Father. Later on at the end, when it talks about in verse 29, Colossians 1, I labor for this striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. That's a reference to the Spirit. As we read through the Bible, we constantly see that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three in one, Pastor Seth has talked about this, they're all at work in bringing us to salvation and in sanctifying us so that we can live on mission. That God is Trinity is central. God is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Verse 18 at the end, that he might have first place in everything. We used to say this with our kids. He's the biggest and the best. Trying to figure, think of words that we could use to describe God. He's the biggest and the best. He's our Savior. Notice there in verse 20 how we've been reconciled back to God through him. He's loving. God is faithful. 
God will be faithful to his eternal to his character and we can trust him in that when we say God is faithful that's more than just a little cute thing that we say when we say God is faithful and he can be trusted and his character doesn't change what that means is Psalm 23 is true forever the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want there's times whenever I need to repeat that to myself over and over God is my shepherd he's not going to change he's not going to stop being my shepherd he's always going to be my shepherd Jesus, the good shepherd. Psalm 91. I love this. So I'm going to read it. A couple of verses from it. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's my refuge and my fortress. I can trust him. So as we read the character, the attributes of God, we can put our trust in him. He's faithful. He won't change. There's a lot there. We don't have time for all of it. Two, we study theology to learn about how to know God and how to live for him. Now, there's a difference between knowing God and and knowing about God. Uh, For example, uh, I know, actually, I know a lot about Michael Jordan, relatively speaking. I watched him play basketball in the 90s. That's one of the things, we couldn't get very much on Chinese TV, but when the NBA Finals were on, they were going to show that on Chinese TV. So I watched all of his uh, games from 96 to 98 on, on the TV. One time I skipped, this is terrible, I skipped Chinese class to watch one of the games because they were on at night here, but it's the morning there, right? And so I wanted to watch that game. I had a class that morning. I'm skipping class because I'm watching Michael Jordan, right? Um about 30 minutes into the game, I hear a knock on the door. My teacher and the other students that didn't skip class were knocking on my door. Um, they came in and watched the game with me, and we had a lot of fun that day. But I, I, I know a lot about him. I know about the championships, two different three-peats. I know about the shoes, right? I know about he owned the team, blah, blah, blah. But I do not know Michael Jordan. So when we think about God, there is a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. And this is one of the things that J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. Those who know God have great energy for God. You're going to find a way to serve him. Paul talks about this when he says there in Colossians 1.29, I labor, striving with all the strength that works powerfully in me. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Think about what Paul is saying here about Jesus. Now, I know the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write this so that it can be a part of this canon of Scripture. But there's others that have also written beautiful things. So we want to think about who God is. Think great thoughts of God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. It's one of the things that humbles me as I read through the book of Acts. These, these believers that are being persecuted day after day after day, they're getting thrown in jail. They're miraculously being brought out of jail. And then they go back and what do they tell the church to pray for them? Let's pray for boldness so that we can keep on doing this. They show great boldness. And those who know God have great contentment in God. Notice in verse 20 there what it says. We're reconciled back to God and he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have peace with God, 
Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a contentment in that. So number one, we study theology to learn about the character of God, the attributes of God. That's foundational. We study theology to learn about, to learn how to know God and live for him. We study theology, number three, we study theology for the purpose of sharing the gospel and advancing the kingdom. You read about that here in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Notice how Paul emphasizes practical ministry in that section of Colossians. A couple of things to notice there about this ministry and sharing the gospel, advancing the kingdom. One, it's not easy. So the work that God calls us to be a part of, biblical worldview, it's not easy to be a part of advancing the kingdom. Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Like, it's hard. He suffered. Uh, Ultimately, he was killed for his faith. One, it's not easy. Two, it involves serving. Verse 25, he says, I've become its servant. He's serving the church. Ultimately, in order to serve Christ, he's serving the church. That's what he says. Sharing the gospel, advancing the kingdom, it's not easy. It involves serving. It involves making God known. Why does he serve, verse 25, uh, according to God's commission that was given to me to make the word of God fully known? And he says in verse 27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We want to make God known. And four, sharing the gospel, advancing the kingdom. This involves work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 29, he says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. I think about this too. Part of a biblical worldview is a supernatural worldview. Okay? We can't do what God's called us to do. We just can't in our flesh. We don't have the power to do it. If we're wanting to see the kingdom advance, we want to see people in cross lanes hear the gospel, understand it, and believe. Right? We want to see people born again. None of us have any power whatsoever to, to cause somebody to be born again. We are dependent on the power of God working in their life and working through us to do this ministry. It's a supernatural work. The Spirit of God in us so that we can labor and strive in this way. Finally, number four, we study theology to guard against error. Now, was, there was a thing in Colossae called the Colossian heresy. We don't really know exactly what the details of that heresy were. We know it was false teaching. Uh, it was a teaching that diminished Jesus. So we don't know the specifics, but we know that it made much of man and it made little of Jesus. God, I'm telling you, if you've got a man-centered theology, it, it's not good. Have a Jesus-centered, a God-centered theology. Some of the things about the Colossian heresy, some of the error was this. If you look in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 8, it was hollow, it was empty, and it was deceptive. So as we think about theology helping us correct error, guard against error, there was something going on here. It was empty. It was deceptive. Number two, it was based on human tradition. Jesus talked about this a lot with the Pharisees. He said that their their teaching was based on human tradition. That's also in chapter 2, verse 8. The teaching did not depend on Christ. 
This is why, again, this is why we unashamedly have a Jesus-centered, a gospel-centered view of the Bible. Look in chapter 2, verse 16. This heretical teaching advocated certain kinds of foods and certain kinds of Jewish holy days. So you gotta, you got to eat these things and you got to follow these days in order to really be saved. That's not what the Bible says. That poor thief on the cross, he didn't get to do any of those things. But he made it because of Jesus. The Colossian heresy, the error here that they were, Paul was telling them to guard against, it emphasized asceticism. That's a severe self-discipline for the sake of acquiring holiness or righteousness. Do we acquire holiness or righteousness through se- severe self-discipline? Denial of self. We don't. We acquire righteousness through Jesus. He calls us to deny ourselves, but that's not how we're made righteous. Here we go. Verse, chapter 2, verse 18. There was a focus on angels. I'm going to tell it real quick. Um, there, if I, I was up somewhere one time, this person was trying to be nice, and, and I walked into this little room. We were staying at, a, at someone's house, and there was this little note on the bed, on the pillow of the bed there. It said, Here's, this is a little angel, and there was a note there. It said, this is your guardian angel so that you'll sleep good tonight. I threw that thing on the other side of the room. I don't need a guardian angel to sleep at night. God is the one that watches over us. So dependence on angels. It emphasized visions. Also chapter 2, verse 18. The teachers of this error were puffed up. They were proud people. And ultimately in chapter 2, verse 19, it says he doesn't hold the teacher, the false teachers, do not hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. They, again, they diminish Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. That was the first part of there. So this Colossian heresy was an error. Here's what I would say about errors and guarding against errors today. There are so many sources of information today. And there are so many sources of bad information today. If TikTok is a primary source of information for you and you're building some some presuppositions on that please stop it doesn't help right uh social media uh the internet in general we want to be really really careful this is where we find reliable information for living life and for living life well we want to have a biblical worldview um data online data I think they, what I read was the, in the last two years, well, it's, it grows exponentially. The information that's out there for us to digest grows exponentially every single year online. And we just have to be really careful about that. Here's what I would say about that. Truth points out error. If you want to understand what's wrong, then you need to understand the truth better. Know the truth well, and you will see the error. Kind of like that counterfeit money thing. Y'all have heard this, and from what I understand, it's true. If you want to know which money is fake, you just need to know what the real thing looks like. Right? If you know what the real thing looks like, you've studied it, you understand it, you know how it feels, you know how it looks, you know everything, you really know. You don't just know about it, you really know it. If you know what the real thing looks like, 
you'll see the fake thing very, very quickly. So I would say, look at the real thing. How do we know what we know? We have to have absolutes, moral absolutes. We believe the Bible teaches those. We want to build biblical presuppositions, and we want our theology to be biblical. What does it mean? It means we want to read our Bibles. We want to digest it. We want to learn more and more so that we can have a biblical worldview. All right, I'm close on time. Thank you guys for being here. Um, here's, here's what I would challenge you. Here's the homework. Go home and pray. Here's what I want you to pray. Go home and pray the four reasons why we study theology. One, read through Colossians 1. Those, those character qualities, attributes of God, His holiness, His, His, His creator, He's sovereign, He's savior, He's loving. Praise God for those things. Just go home and say, God, you are all these things. I praise you for that. Pray that we would know how to know him and how to live for him. I'm, I'm praying these things back to God. Pray, like number three, that we would be active in sharing the gospel and advancing the kingdom, doing the hard work that God calls us to. And pray that uh, we would be able to guard against error. That, that, actually, if you go look at the uh, Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, you'll see that it's, it very, very closely fits these things. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. So, let me pray for us, and then we'll be, we'll be done. God, we uh, God, we praise you. Truth is dependent on you. God, uh, so we come to you for this. God, you're the one that's unchanging. You are the one that's faithful. You're the one that's eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. God, we find comfort and peace in that also. God, you're the Savior who loves us. And Jesus, you've reconciled us back to the Father. Spirit, you give us strength to go do the work that we're called to. God, help us to know you better and to live for you. God, help us to be a part of your kingdom work. God, to live on mission. God, that we would not be casual about our Christian life, but God, we would be serious about it. And God, that you would guard us from temptation. God, that you would guard us from the evil one. God, the word says that he's, uh, he's, he's roaming around. He's looking for one to devour. And God, I pray that we would stand firm in you through your power. And God, you would, um, God, you would work in all these things. Thank you for Cross Lanes Baptist Church. God bless us. Help us to be a people... Uh, they're unified on mission. God, who, who love your word and we love you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.